Hey there, folks. Welcome back to Pretend World's Real People. As always, I'm Tyler. And uh, really quick, I hope I don't sound too nasally. I just watched the Dave Stevens documentary, Drawn to Perfection. Oh, and I went from just smiles and laughing to just tears towards the end. But full on just waterfall. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he's a creator of The Rocketeer. He's one of my idols. And I just loved uh, getting to check out this brand new documentary on iTunes, Amazon, it's available everywhere. So please go, go check it out because it, it is, uh, it's such a good watch, but yeah, especially if you're a huge fan of his, it's just tears the entire time. So I am clearing my voice up as we speak, but let's jump right into you going to see Violent Night. Don't even think about it. Go see the film. I saw it twice this weekend. It is officially going to be part of my Christmas rotation. It was, it was I can't I can't spoil anything for you, but it is uh, deliciously crazy. Uh, yeah, let's just go with that. But yeah, go see Violent Night. It was so much fun. But we got to get down to business because this is an episode I'm so pumped to share with all of you. Uh, joined by two filmmakers that helped me <laughs> out of a breakup a couple of years back. I was full on, you know, wrapped in a comforter eating ice cream and pizza at the same time. It sounds disgusting. Wasn't that bad when you uh, have a broken heart? But I watched their film Spring on Netflix, was transfixed, obsessed, loved every single second of it. So I made it my life's mission to just absorb anything they made, including their first film, Resolution, their most notable film, The Endless, which came out a few years ago, and everybody seems to know more than their previous films, so please check out their previous films as well. But they also have another film coming out called Something in the Dirt that is available on VOD. So you got to check that one out too, because I, I can't even begin to explain that movie, but it is, uh, it's just an absolute joy. Not only that, but they are now working within the Marvel Cinematic Universe on projects like Moon Knight and the upcoming Loki Season 2. So a lot, <laughs> it's just a lot of stuff to jam pack within a half an hour, but I think we did a pretty good job. Uh, yeah, so without further ado, I, I, there's nothing else to say. I'm just going to get you right into there. Let's sit down and let's have a chat with the amazing duo, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Uh, so uh, my name is Aaron Moorhead. Uh, and my my co-filmmaker, partner, essentially brother is Justin Benson. And we are independent filmmakers specializing in kind of a DIY style. And then also when we're not doing that, we uh, we also direct television. That's it. I'm Justin Benson. I do exactly the same thing. And I would have said exactly the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> You guys are so synced up. I could just tell you're like, yeah, I'm Justin. What's up? <laughs> um, I will say before, you know, we dive into it, like one, thank you guys for coming on to the show. I know you're really busy with the release of something in the dirt, but also to say that I'm a huge fan of all of your work, especially spring uh, got me through a really heavy breakup in uh, 2015. So thank you for releasing me from, you know, that burden. But uh, I want to go back and see like, when did you guys start to, you know, latch onto each other creatively and think, you know, we can, we can create something together. We can, you know, make projects, whether it's short films or, you know, photography. And when did you guys decide that was, uh, you know, your next step? Uh, see, it was roughly about 2009. Um, I was on 
the year gap before medical school started, Aaron had just moved out from Florida. He had just graduated from Florida State University um, from the very prestigious homeschool program there that so many brilliant people seem to go to. Don't seem to, they do go to. Um, and uh, we were both interning at a uh, production company that's called RSA. It's Ridley Scott and Associates. It's Ridley Scott's commercial production company. We never met Ridley Scott. We might have seen him once or twice, like walk through the lobby. We sat in the lobby at a table. We got people their lunches. We got them their coffee. We did uh, pick up some deliveries and um, struck up a conversation with each other sitting at the little intern table and just talked about Stephen King books and stuff like that. And then uh, I think we were both thinking that, that we would perhaps direct commercials. I was kind of going to throw a Hail Mary and make a reel of uh, commercial spec ads to see if that could be a potential thing that I would do instead of medical school. And I think Aaron um, just saw it as the same kind of the same way. I was like, oh, foot in the door, becoming a director. We both learned pretty quickly that you don't really get your foot in the door directing so much anymore, at least in 2009, by, by directing commercials. It's extremely hard to break into. Um, but we made all of these like, spec ad commercials and collaborate with each other on them we made some short films stuff like that and then uh saved up some money from 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 night jobs bartending and busing tables and whatever to go make a feature film that we knew if we combined our talents and resources and skills uh, we could probably get it done for that amount of money in our bank accounts and that movie was resolution we made that movie somehow it got into Tribeca film festival total just huge stroke of luck, extremely lucky. And then, um, and then, uh, and then, yeah. And then we've been able to uh, kind of carve our way into this career ever since 2009. Oh, that's fantastic. And it seems like you guys have made a, you know, within 10 plus years, I mean, just a little over 10 years, you've completely exploded uh, cinematically in a variety of ways, but now you are working with, you know, Marvel studios and, and, you know, working on all these big projects. Is that, change your creative process at all when it comes to directing for a major company like that as opposed to making your own stuff or like what is it like navigating that uh, that sort of different um creative process it was something that we stepped into very naturally i think because of two things uh one is um, of course, there is. It, it is different when you are responsible for the entire film, top to bottom, as an independent filmmaker, versus just the um, discipline of directing. The, the, meaning that those those are technically different. Um, but one is this: we're already co-directors. We have a, a very tight knit um, production company. We are not strangers to collaboration. It has never felt like a monolith. Uh, it, and what I say goes and, you know, throwing tantrums when things don't go your way. That doesn't work in indie film because then your film just doesn't get made. You know, you have to adapt. And so the ideas of collaboration and adaptation to adversity and stuff like that was immediately just very natural to us. So working on things like The Twilight Zone, working for Marvel and Netflix and all of that, um, it was easy. Now, I, I, don't mean, I don't mean easy, uh, simple. Um, there wasn't this this weird Rubik's cube we had to solve, and um, and then the other bit of it is 
directing is still just directing. It doesn't really matter what the size of the, the film is. Uh, I'm sure it changes if you're directing like stop action animation or something, but, uh, but ultimately you prepare. Uh, that's at least what we do. We, we do a lot of preparation. It doesn't matter if it's indie or, or large. Um, you rehearse, you break down the script, you go onto the set, you know where the, the camera goes and you know where the actors go and you have conversations about it. That doesn't change big or small. Um, and ultimately that is the craft. So um, the, the learning to work with different sizes of organizations or, or different actors that, um, you know, that are different le le uh, career levels. Um, it's just the same thing as working with different people, which you do on indie films. So. Yeah, and given your your you know history of work, it seems like you guys have, and I could be wrong, but it seems like you have a very distinctive sort of way of uh, outlining, producing, and creating your films. I mean, what is the what is a day in the life like for you guys to say developing something in the dirt when we are in lockdown and you know you are looking at locations and you're you know kind of going through ideas? What was that process like? Were you just trading Google Docs? Were you you know sneaking to the other person's apartment and you know coming up with stuff on a like a dry erase board? What was that like for you? Good question. Um, there, the the general workflow that that we typically do for movie to movie it's something like this. There's one more step. That's step one in the case of something in the dirt that I guess I'll just end with. I'll go kind of in reverse. Usually what happens is um, we, we come up with a concept for a movie, just the general idea, the general premise. And then we'll just brainstorm together, uh, typically in my dining room. Um, actually, it's the, it's the window that John and Levi sit at in something in the dirt. Um, it's usually that little area. I'll just sit there and brainstorm and then we'll shoot a Google doc back and forth for several months. And then we'll go to script phase, write the script, um, and then go into uh, six weeks to two months of rehearsal uh, with that script. And, and, and that'll be just dialing in what the performances will be when we get into set and also refining the script for the performer playing that character. Um, and that rehearsal process is probably the biggest part for uh it's one of the most that is probably the most important part for us um and just getting the performances dialed in so that when we get to set it's an indie film you don't have that much time so that you can allow some jazz to happen but you're not um getting to the end of a scene and then realizing like oh wow but there was this great idea but there's no way you'd ever have time to reshoot an entire scene um and, and also the performances seem to really benefit from that. There's so much nuance that comes out. I think that most of our movies, even if people hate them, they'll say something like, hey, but there was really great chemistry in it. And to us, what we've discovered is that chemistry is just the result of rehearsal. It's just finding little things to make it look lived in and, and really refining the script itself so that it matches the performer in the best way that it can or it accommodates them the best way it can. Um, and then, yeah, then we, then we shoot movie. Usually our movies, usually we get three weeks to a month and then, um, and then, and then go into the edit and Aaron and I edit with a third editor, Michael Felker. But another weird thing about edits for us is on, on Aaron and I's side of it, we tend to like one of us takes the first half, one of us takes the second half and then we trade at a certain point. We do that a few times. Um, and then, and then the rest of it's just getting into all the, the, the normal, 
the normal finishing stuff. Um, uh, but we've always worked with the same sound mixer, this guy, Yal Dooley, who's basically, we always call him our third director. He's really responsible so much for the tone of our films. Obviously, our composer, Jimmy Duvall, has been the same guy ever since spring. Um, and so, like, the last part, one of the coolest things in the process is getting into his studio and just hearing the magic that he's created and giving however much feedback we can. But, I mean, really, it's mostly just him. Um, uh, but there was a, there's an additional step that's step one in something in the dirt. And that is we had, like, over a decade of, um, of just brainstorming ideas of what would our movie be if we made like a haunted house movie, uh, you know, like Poltergeist or The Conjuring or Paranormal Activity or whatever. Like, what would our version of that be? And um, you know, a lot of that is like failed pitches. Like someone asked pitches on it and didn't didn't go well. Uh, didn't get the job, which is most of our pitches. Um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, but, um, but yeah. So there was a, there was an additional step of like over a decade of brainstorming for something in the dirt. And, you know, this is something that I love asking, you know, writers and directors, especially those who collaborate with each other on a consistent basis. As a writer and a screenwriter, my, or as a writer and actor myself, I love collaboration, but there are points where, you know, you do have to take a step back when somebody has like a better note or, you know, it's all about finding the the proper uh, way of telling the story, right? So how do you guys navigate when one of you disagrees with, you know, an idea or a shot or a scene? Is it a matter of, you know, like Rochambeau or, you know, do you look at it as a whole and go, okay, maybe this is better for the property or maybe it's not better for the property? Um, I think it, it's, it's become very natural to us over the last few years. So it's hard to break down exactly what, what it is. Um, but really what it is, is uh, so normally if, if one of us has a critique for the other, we, we very often just take it because that is, we, we have such a tight collaboration that that is our lens to the outside world. Um, but often it's more like a building up of like, is this too crazy? And then you do it and you're like, that was actually great. Have confidence in that idea, um, which is the most fun part of this. Um, but if we actually do notice that we both disagree and we're both digging in our heels, we relatively quickly realize that um, we just haven't found the actual answer yet. And um, and it's ne never is it somewhere in the middle. It's always a third path that we weren't seeing. I, I couldn't name a single time where we just met right in the middle. Um, it's because compromise is just not a really good way to make art. Uh, but but uh, But collaboration to find the best answer is. I couldn't tell you that that would work with every two people you put together, but it works really well with us. So, It seems like it, honestly. It's just, I love asking that question because a lot of people, you know, especially if they're writers, they're not sure if they want to work with somebody else. You know, they're afraid of their work being torn apart or they're really sensitive about it. So it's always good to have that other person with you that you trust to say, yeah, let's just, you know, let's either sit on it. Let's talk about it over a cup of coffee or beers or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but I am really intrigued uh, to ask you guys this question but what do you guys do to sort of separate yourself from your art I mean you're constantly thinking about editing sound shot lists if you're prepping for the next project you're writing you're outlining you're storyboarding what do you like to do outside of filmmaking I mean what what are your uh, your go-to hobbies hmm, good question no one's ever asked us that before <laughs> um uh Aaron will speak more on it but he's got He's got his sitting in his lap right now. He got a, <laughs> got a canine chai. I know. I saw the doggo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's his birthday. Oh, happy birthday, bud. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, gosh, I'm having the most boring, boring answers. Um, something I've genuinely always tried to do is um, that I would recommend to any artist or anyone in any field, and it's like, doesn't be like, yeah, of course. It's like a certain level, uh, maintaining a certain level of fitness, like finding 30 minutes to an hour a day to just uh, exhaust oneself physically, um, if you're lucky enough to have that 30 minutes to an hour. But like any time you can have, that's something I've always tried to maintain that I think keeps me pretty sane in this uh, in this job. Um, but then also just trying to find enough time to devote oneself to, to loved ones, uh, friendships, family, romantic relationships, all those things um, has been, I guess, I guess those are, I don't know if those qualify as hobbies, to be honest. Maybe I just went <laughs> off track with the, with the, uh, with the answer. We, we had a, we just came off of a little over two years where it kind of felt impossible to do almost anything except, except work. And it wasn't intentional. It was just because we started something in the dirt and then we started getting jobs very unexpectedly in the industry at large. And that was the time when it was, couldn't it was really hard having hobbies would you say Aaron yeah yeah I it was funny because you know we were working on these these jobs and a lot of the people that were on the job were like they were like they, they would grind on the work meaning they would they would go home and think about the work and work on the work and then wake up and work on the work and and um, I realized actually pretty recently that that just does not work for me, or at least doesn't anymore, where I, the work, because the problem is the quality of the work goes down. You can maybe get more done, but the, but it goes down. So I would find ways to very actively detach my mind, um, doing things like what Justin's talking about, going to the gym and, and um, you know, spending time with my loved ones and my dog and, but, but also even just like trying to read more video games, stuff like, just anything that would, that would deliberately pull my mind away, I would let my mind go instead of like thinking about the, the, the art and craft, because I think it's kind of like when, when people, the way that people describe, uh, when they, when they take Adderall, um, where they say like, oh, I get a lot done, but it's not like good work. It just is work. Um, it's like, it's like an Excel spreadsheet rather than the creative aspect of it. And um, I don't know if that's an actual experience. That's just how I, how I hear. But that's the um, that's how it is for me if I just keep going and going and going. Uh, so I, I find anything to distract myself during production, uh, especially during production when it's when we're just grinding fourteen hours a day. I just don't want to give the production the rest of those hours. Well, and speaking on that, you know, everyone has varying levels of uh, days and sort of like this lucidity when it comes to working past 14 hours and this is something that constantly comes up on this podcast but uh, I was wondering if you guys had a a story that you could share with our listeners that we would call like a party story so uh, my version of that is getting my my chin broken open on a Taylor Sheridan set my first movie set and having to work through that and act like no man it's cool I got it don't don't worry about it um, and being in agonizing pain the entire day uh, but essentially this is a story where you know something may have happened on a set something may have happened in your personal life but it's something that stands out so immensely in your memory that you could easily recant it among friends at a party do you have something anything you know crazy like that in your uh, arsenal i used to work i used to i mean i've i've, I've 
been a production assistant on music videos that it turned into literally, I think like a 20 hour day. I've had a, I've had a couple of those. But I think in general, you know, obviously production assistant work, the, the hours are extraordinarily long. And I'm pretty sure the, you know, it's a day rate, but I'm pretty sure when you break down the hourly, it's literally criminal. Um, it's a, like, it's illegal. Like it's like a, it's a labor violation. I don't know why I'm laughing. Uh, I think it's trying to deal with the, the wounds. But um, uh, I had one, I mean, there's the normal like, oh, feeling like I'm going to fall asleep at the wheel or something. That's not cool at all. But there was one in particular that's funny. It wasn't actually a long day necessarily. I think it was like a normal 10 hour day. But I like, you know, you're, the hours are long enough. You just don't have time to go home and do normal things. And I was leaving my contacts in too long. Remember, I like, tore my retina. I remember like going through the day with my eye just like bright red looking like it's bleeding and just like, I'm all good. I'm fine. You know? <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then like going to the doctor that night. Uh, like, oh, you, you left your contacts in too long. So you tore it dried out and tore your retina. Yeah. I, Justin, you'll love, you'll, you'll love this one. But this, this is, uh, you know, we're not proud of this at all. Uh, this, this is a, this is, this sucked, but this was partially our fault. So we're going to, we're going to tell it, which was, we were trying to get spring made and we made a, uh, a proof of concept film. That was like a three minute long conversation, one long shot in what appeared to be the Italian coastline. We were shooting in La Jolla, California with some visual effects. And um, what happened was we're shooting it kind of on this rock on the ocean and um, and you could walk in via the beach, and uh, and some like look. We th this is this is our. We had actually checked the tides and all of that. Um, some people were that were working with us were late, and we didn't have the shot yet. And so we kept we pushed it a little bit too late, and that was our own fault. Um, but we otherwise wouldn't have gotten the scene at all, and it would have been a huge waste of money that we didn't have because um, it was out of out of our bank accounts. Um, but that's the that's the reasoning, but not a justification. We should have just called it. And uh, the tide came up and actually stranded us on that rock as the sun was going down. And there's no light, and it is not a moonless night. And so we had we knew we had to go off the rock the other direction with the whole cast and crew and all of our gear in one trip. So we couldn't make a second trip for the gear. Um, and so with you know a car battery that was our power source and the red camera and a steady cam and all of that. And just like a dozen of people who did not sign up for this, we had to go the other way off of the rock, which was like a quarter mile down a beach and then a quarter mile up like the steepest incline goat trail fire path I'd ever seen. And, um, and we all made it off. Uh, luckily, the only casualty was I broke my toe uh, because I, I, I had worn sandals thinking we were just <laughs> shooting on the beach. And then we, we had to walk through some, some rocks and carry the gear and I just smashed it. And I had to be up at 6 a.m. the next morning to shoot a music video. And uh, and I did that with a broken toe. And that was a very good lesson. <laughs> yeah. But I would like to publicly apologize to anyone that was on that shoot. That really sucked for, for everyone and you guys in, in particular. We at least got something out of it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm sure there's, I mean, there's so many stories in everyone's career who works in this industry, right? So even though it sucks on the day, they're thinking about it years later laughing. Yeah, we all, we all went to dinner and laughed about it, but it yeah. was like, in the moment, we're like, this is irresponsible. This is sketch. <laughs> That's a well, new film, I guess, but, you know. Yeah. Well, that goes hand in hand with 
one of the final questions I have for, for both of you guys, and it's if you have any advice you could pass on to our listeners, whether they're somebody who's looking to start a career in the entertainment industry or somebody who's in it, you know, right now, post-pandemic, and they're just trying to stay in it. Do you have anything that could keep them going that's helped you along? Yeah. Um, there's, a really, there's some really good news that, uh, that Aaron and I and David and other people we work with all got to discover together is that luckily, at least for us, we've never been able to like just meet someone and that's where an opportunity came from. You know, looking to someone else, looking above you, looking to what you think is like a big producer or something uh, to bring you opportunities or to open any doors for you. Um, or to, like, those shoot doors crew. never, yeah. what's that? I was yeah, just thinking just... Like, or, like even crew, you know, like, like yeah. a big DP or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's you know those those doors never really open for us, and and then in, in terms of like Aaron's example of crew, it's like oh, it's like actually the people we came up with and we work with have always actually just been the best people for us to work with and getting the best results in the art itself. Um, but yeah, just being like, oh, if you just keep working at it, you just keep doing what what's in your heart expressing yourself in that way making that art everything's always seemed to work out work out for us um and that even when things have come along in 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 the industry at large that were that there were that were opportunities of us getting hired to do something for an enterprise that isn't rustic films our company that thing i couldn't even tell you how we got that job or why we got that job really specifically um came when we were least expecting it. And, and, it, and it came as the result of probably an aggregate of following our own hearts and, and, and artistic impulses over enough time, over enough projects that, that someone thought we might be a good, a good fit for, for this thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's just a really long way of saying like, oh yeah, as long as you just keep making stuff, it'll probably just all work out the best. But just really making stuff with your friends, not, yeah. not trying to meet people to make stuff. Yeah. And I, I have a, I have, I had a recent, a very recent experience. It was last weekend um, where just by total wonderful coincidence within 24 hours, I went to the theater to watch RRR. Um, and then the next morning I just happened to finish at, uh, uh, I had a lengthy listen session and finished my audiobook of the disaster artist, which is actually written by and read by Greg Sestero, who was in the room. Tommy Wiseau. And then uh, as I finished reading that, I went to go see The Fablemans. So I just, within 24 hours, just happened to have like a, like a movie time, you know? <laughs> like, and I will tell you, I learned something different from each one of them. And I, I, was, I left that weekend, like just my heart bursting, loving making movies. You know, RRR is this movie that was made in a regional dialect in India you know, that it was never expected to, to escape that region. And here we were, people were losing their minds in the theater, not at home on Netflix. Like they got together in a movie theater and lost their minds collectively for the movie version of watching the Beatles concert. You know, like they were just, and, and it, it like that is a, a magic that does not happen in the living room. And like that, that is like a, the collective exhibition of cinema is so important and cool and like makes you love it. So I would be like, oh, seek that out. And then same thing with the disaster artist where it's like, oh, there's this 
guy with a crazy dream and uh you know he's a bit of a dick and he's also um and you know he made what is called one of the worst films of all time and yet he's so incorrigible about making his dream happen that you can't help but love him and that made me fall in love with movies you know it was like it doesn't matter if it's bad you just have to love doing it like the doing of it is what matters and then of course you know i see the fablemans and i feel like a lot of filmmakers will especially of our age will be like oh there's there's bits and pieces of our own childhood in there. Um, I didn't have the family drama, but the, uh, you know, the, the idea of making a World War II film without enough extras, I've totally done that, like exactly that. You know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and I think that, that there's, there's a lot of resonance for the, the love of the art. And um, I guess what I mean is normally I, I turn my nose up at, at movies about movie making, and yet we just made one with something in the dirt. And I think like seeking those out when you're at a low moment actually really helps. Oh, both, both wonderful pieces of advice. Uh, and now it makes me want to go see the Fablemans because I wasn't sure at first. <laughs> I wasn't sure either. And now I'm so sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, as uh, we're wrapping up here, guys, I want to say thank you so much for your time. Huge fan of your work. I can't wait to see what else you guys do next. Hopefully audition for you, work with you at some point in the future. Uh, but I want to wrap this episode up with what we call an awkward goodbye, uh, which references uh, Wayne's World. I'm not sure if you guys have ever seen that film. No. No? Oh, oh it's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. Oh, it means That's... I have something ahead of me. That's good. <laughs> we'll get past it. We'll get past it. Uh, well, essentially, there's a scene where... Uh, a corporation takes over what we would call, you know, a modern day podcast radio show, but it's set in the 90s. So <laughs> one of the characters leaves and the other main character is left to fend for themselves, just emitting this awkward, mumbly, whatchamacallit, as they're looking straight into the camera. So uh, I'm going to count down from five or no, let's do three. Count down from three. When I point to you, just give me your best verbal, awkward goodbye, and we will bid adieu from there. Get, does that sound good? Nice and awkward? Yeah. All right, fellas. Okay, here we go. In three. Hey. Um. See ya. See you.